Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger Chapter 2b The Function of Psychological Warfare Part 2 Ideology An ideology is a system of deep-rooted beliefs about fundamental questions in human life and affairs. Footnote In his The Political Doctrines of Sun Yat-sen, Baltimore, 1937, page 17 and following, this author attempted to present some of the relationships of ideology to other methods of social control, and in connection with that enterprise was furnished by the philosopher A. O. Lovejoy with a definition of ideology more systematic and more elaborate than the one used here. End footnote. Ideology also plays a part in psychological warfare. A difference in beliefs which does not touch fundamentals is commonly termed a difference of opinion. You may believe in high tariffs, and I in no tariff. You may believe in one world, I may not. You may support Republicans, I Democrats. Despite these differences, both of us can still believe in dollars as a method of paying income, in marriage as a system of setting up the family, in private property for most goods, industrial or personal, in the government of the United States, in majority rule, in democratic elections, in free speech, and so on. If our difference of opinion is so inclusive that we can agree on nothing political, our differences have gone from mere opinion into the depths of ideology. Here the institutional framework is affected. You and I would not want to live in the same city. We could not feel safe in one another's presence. Each would be afraid of the effect which the other might have on the morals of the community. If I were a Nazi and you a Democrat, you would not like the idea of my children living next door to yours. If I believed that you were a good enough creature, poor deluded devil, but that you were not fit to vote, scarcely to be trusted with property, not to be trusted as an army officer, and generally subversive and dangerous, you would find it hard to get along with me. It was not metaphysical theories that made Protestants and Catholics burn one another's adherents as heretics in early wars. In the 17th century, the Protestants knew perfectly well what would happen if the Catholics got the upper hand, and the Catholics knew what would happen if the Protestants came to power. In each case, the new rulers, fearful that they might be overthrown, would have suppressed the former rulers and would have used the rack, the stake, and the dungeon as preventatives of counter-revolution. Freedom cannot be accorded to persons outside the ideological pale. If an antagonist is not going to respect your freedom of speech, your property, and your personal safety, then you are not obliged to respect his. The absolute minimum of any ideology is the assumption that each person living in an ideologically uniform area, what the Nazi general Haushofer following Rudolf Kellen would call a geopsychic zone, will respect the personal safety, etc., of other individuals in the same area. In our own time, we have seen Spaniards get more and more mistrustful of one another until years of ferocious civil war were necessary before one of the two factions could feel safe. Spain went from republican unity to dictatorial unity in four years. In neither case was the unity perfect, but it was enough to give one government and one educational system control of most of the country. The other countries of the world vary in the degree of their ideological cohesion. Scandinavia seemed serene until the German invasion brought to the surface cleavages, latent and unseen, which made quisling a quisling. Russia, Italy, Germany, and various other states have made a fetish of their ideologies and have tried to define orthodoxy and heresy in such a way as to be sure of the mentality of all their people. But most of the countries of the world suffer from a considerable degree of ideological confusion, of instability of basic beliefs, without having any immediate remedy at hand or even seeking one. Education. Education is a process usually institutional, 
by which the people of a given area transmit to their successors their own children. The purely practical information needed in modern life, together with a lot of other teachings designed to make good men and women, good citizens, good Christians or other believers of them. In the democratic states, this process is ideological only in some parts of the curriculum. Elsewhere in the field of opinions, the government seeks to control ideology only negatively through laws concerning obscenity, blasphemy, subversion, and so on. In the states which are ideologically self-conscious and anxious to promote a fixed mentality, the process of education is combined with agitation and regulation, so that the entire population lives under conditions approximating the psychological side of war. Heretics are put to death or are otherwise silenced. Historical materialism and the Marxian objectivity, or the folk, or fascismo, or Yamato Damashi, or new democracy, is set up as the touchstone of all good and evil, even in unrelated fields of activity. Education and propaganda merge into everlasting indoctrination. And when such states go to war against states which do not have propaganda machinery, the more liberal states are at a disadvantage for sheer lack of practice in the administrative and mechanical aspects of propaganda. Education is to psychological warfare what a glacier is to an avalanche. The mind is to be in both cases captured, but the speed and techniques differ. Salesmanship Salesmanship is related to psychological warfare. Propaganda is often compared to another art of our time, industrialized salesmanship, through mass printing and telecommunications. This bad parallel was responsible for much of the inept American propaganda overseas in the early part of the war. Some of our propagandists had a fundamental misconception of the nature of wartime propaganda. Allegiance in war is a matter of ideology, not of opinion. A man cannot want his own side to lose while remaining a good citizen in all other respects. The desire for defeat, even the acceptance of defeat, is of tragic importance to any responsible sane person. A German who wanted the Reich to be overthrown was a traitor to Germany, just as any American who wished us to pull out of the war and exterminate American Jews would have been a traitor to his own country. These decisions cannot be compared with the choice of a toothpaste, a deodorant, or a cigarette. Advertising succeeds in peacetime precisely because it does not matter. The choice which the consumer makes is of slight importance to himself, even though it is of importance to the seller of the product. A dromedary cigarette and an old coin cigarette are both cigarettes. The man is going to smoke one anyhow. It does not matter so much to him. If dromedaries are associated in his mind with mere tobacco, while old coins call up unaccountable but persistent memories of actresses' legs, he may buy old coins. The physical implements of propaganda were at hand in 1941-1942, but we Americans had become so accustomed to their use for trivial purposes that much of our wartime propaganda was conducted in terms of salesmanship. In a sense, however, salesmanship does serve the military purpose of accustoming the audience to appeals both visual and auditory. The consequence is that competing outside propaganda can reach the domestic American audience only in competition with the local advertising. It is difficult for foreign competition to hold attention amid an almost limitless number of professionally competent commercial appeals. A communist or fascist party cannot get public attention in the United States by the simple expedient of a mass meeting of 300 persons, or by the use of a few dozen posters in a metropolitan area. Before the political propagandist can get the public attention, he must edge his media past the soap operas, the soft drink advertisements, the bathing beauties advertising Pennsylvania crude or bright leaf tobacco. 
The consequence is that outside propaganda either fails to get much public attention, or else camouflages itself to resemble and to exploit existing media. Clamorous salesmanship deadens the American citizen to his own government's propaganda, and may to a certain extent lower his civic alertness, but at the same time salesmanship has built up a psychological great wall, which excludes foreign or queer appeals, and which renders the United States almost impervious to sudden ideological penetration from overseas. Psychological Warfare and Public Relations Psychological warfare and public relations are different in the direction in which they apply. Psychological warfare is designed to reach the enemy. Public relations is designed primarily to reach the home audience. Both reach neutrals, sometimes confusingly much. In some nations, the two functions were combined in a single instrumentality, as in the Japanese Joho Kyoku, see page 184 below. The American Army and Navy traditions of public relations are based on the ideas that the news should be as complete as military security may permit, that it should be delivered speedily and interestingly, that it should enhance the confidence of the people in their armed services, and that its tenor, no less than its contents, should not aid the enemy morale. These ideas are justified in terms of sound newspaper practice, but they can lead to a weak psychological warfare position when we must deal with an inventive and enterprising enemy. It is not possible to separate public relations from psychological warfare when they use the same media. During World War II, the Office of War Information prepared elaborate watertight plans for processing war news to different audiences. At their most unfortunate, such plans seemed to assume that the enemy would listen only to the OWI stations, and that the American public releases issued from Army and Navy would go forth to the world without being noted by the enemy. If a radio in New York or San Francisco presented a psychological warfare presentation of a stated battle or engagement, while the theater or fleet public relations officer presented a very different view, the enemy press and radio were free to choose the weaker of the two, or to quote the two American sources against each other. Psychological Warfare and Morale Services All modern armies, in addition to public relations, also employ morale services facilities. Officers or employees whose function it is to supply troops with entertainment, educational materials, political indoctrination, and other attention-getting materials. Morale services are the prime overt defense against enemy psychological warfare, and by a program of keeping the attention of the troops can prevent the enemy from establishing effective communication. During World War II, the Armed Forces Radio Service of the United States established global radio service for Americans, and incidentally turned out material of top importance to a United States propaganda. Naturally, enemy and allied peoples would pay more serious heed to communications from Americans to Americans than they would to materials which they knew had been concocted for themselves. The American morale services in the last war indignantly rejected the notion that they were a major propaganda facility, rightfully insisting that their audience counted on getting plain information, plain news, and plain education without ulterior propaganda content. The fact that in a theater of war, all communication has propaganda effect was not always taken into account, and only on one or two critical occasions was there coordination of stress and timing. It must be said, however, that propaganda by any other name is just as sweet, and that the conviction of the propagandist that he is not a propagandist can be a real asset. Morale services provided the American forces with news, entertainment, and educational facilities. Most of the time, these morale facilities had huge parasitical audiences, the global kibitzers who listened to our broadcasts, read our magazines, bought our paper-bound books on the black markets. 
It was a happy day for Lianta University at Kunming, Yunnan, when the American Information and Education Setup began shipping in current literature. The long isolated Chinese college students found themselves deluged with good American books. The morale services lost the opportunity to ram home to their GI plus foreign audience some of the more effective points of American psychological warfare, but they gained as propagandists by not admitting even to themselves that they were propagandists. Since the United States has no serious inward psychological cleavages, the general morale services function coordinated automatically with the psychological warfare function, simply because both were produced by disciplined patriotic Americans. In the experience of the German and Soviet armies, morale services were parts of a coordinated propaganda machine which included psychological warfare, public relations, general news, and public education. In the Japanese armies, morale services were directed most particularly to physical and sentimental comforts, edible treats, picture postcards, good luck items, which bore little immediate relation to news and less to formal propaganda. Related Civilian Activities in a free nation, the big media of communication will remain uncoordinated even in time of war. The press, the stage, motion pictures, part of the radio, book publishing, and so on, will continue. Psychological warfare has, in such private facilities, a constantly refreshed source of new material for news or for features. By a sparing but well-considered liaison with censorship, psychological warfare can affect negative control of non-governmental materials and can prevent the most overt forms of enemy propaganda from circulating on the home front. News becomes propaganda when the person issuing it has some purpose in doing so. Even if the reporters, editors, writers involved do not have propaganda aims, the original source of the news, the person giving the interview, the friends of the correspondents, etc., may give the news to the press with definite purposes in mind. It is not unknown for government officials to shift their rivalries from the conference room to the press, and to provide on-the-record or off-the-record materials, which are in effect ad hoc propaganda campaigns. A psychological warfare campaign must be planned on the assumption that these civilian facilities will remain in being, and that they will be uncoordinated. The plan must allow an advance for interference, sometimes of a very damaging kind, which comes from private operations in the same field. The combat officers can get civilian cars off the road when moving armored forces into battle, but the psychological warfare officer has the difficult task of threading his way through civilian radio and other communication traffic over which he has no control. Psychological warfare is also closely related to diplomacy. It is an indispensable ingredient of strategic deception. In the medical field, psychological warfare can profit by the experiences of the medical corps. Whenever a given condition arises among troops on one side, comparable troops on the other are apt to be facing the same condition. If the Americans are bitten by insects, the same insects will bite the enemy. And enemy soldiers can be told how much better the American facilities are for insect repulsion. Finally, psychological warfare is intimately connected with the processing of prisoners of war and with the protection of one's own captured personnel. Psychological warfare is a field to itself, although it touches on many sciences and overlaps with all the other functions of war. It is generally divisible into three topics, the general scheme of psychological warfare, the detection and analysis of foreign psychological warfare operations, and the tactical or immediate conduct of psychological warfare. Sections of this book deal with each of these in turn. In each case, it must be remembered, however, that psychological warfare is not a closed operation which can be conducted in private, but that, to be effective, psychological warfare output must be a part of the everyday living and fighting of the audiences to which it is directed.
End of section 4.